Hi, this is Susan Purvis calling in from Whitefish, Montana, and welcome to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned in to episode 4.22 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by TAS by MND, an avalanche of solutions. And our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside, with additional support from InterWest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. It's sort of a bittersweet episode 4.22 just because it is the last episode of season four of the Avalanche Hour podcast. Um, not to worry, we'll be back for season five starting up in just a few short months. October 1st, we'll be releasing our, our first episode. And meanwhile, I'm going to be busy gathering content and interviews from people around the country maybe even around the world, hopefully reach into some other countries um, might as well as we're socially distancing, try and make this world feel a little bit, a little bit closer. If you have any ideas for topics, some people are definitely reaching out these days and I appreciate that. But if you have an idea and you haven't reached out, shoot me an email. I'm at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. If you have an idea for a topic that you'd like us to dive into for next season or have somebody in mind that might have a great story to tell about decision making in the backcountry avalanche environment or near miss or an accident um, reach out i want to share your story thanks to all you out there that are listening to this show um, this podcast really can't do it without the listeners well i could but it'd be a lot less fulfilling so Um, especially this season it seems like I've gotten a lot more engagement from the community and I really hope to build off of that engagement and the momentum that's been created Um, for season five as I'm conducting interviews in the fall I'm hoping to have a little bit more of a presence on on Instagram on social media prior to some of the interviews so hopefully listeners out there can can give me a follow on the Instagram and you'll be able to see on my story who I'm about to to interview and you can um, submit questions for those folks. So hopefully um, if you do, I'll, I'll work those in. I'll do my best to work those into the interviews and we can create more engagement from the community that way. So pretty excited about the opportunity for that. I started it a little bit last fall um, in the interview process of season four but hoping to build upon that so thanks for being involved in that i appreciate you and of course a big shout out to the sponsors of this podcast that really wouldn't be possible without them they are tas by mnd makers of gazx gazflex obelex and daisy bell remote avalanche control systems for over 20 years tas has been the leader in natural hazard control systems whether it's for villages and towns infrastructures or ski areas and highways uh, tas has been developing engineering installing maintaining some of the best avalanche remote avalanche control systems out there Um, and they have supported this podcast pretty much from day one so huge thanks to tas um, by MND, uh, an avalanche of solutions. And of course, 10 Barrel Brewing, we know that you have a choice in your micro brew selections out there. And I would just ask that you support the brand that helps support your community. 10 Barrel Brewing started in Bend, Oregon by some friends. It's grown quite a bit over the years and expanded to many states now there's brew pubs in denver boise san diego portland 
and of course the hometown of Bend, Oregon. Um, check those guys out. They've got a new line, the Clean Line, which is a new hard seltzer release. Sure to quench your thirst and and help you have some fun along the way this summer on those hot summer days on the river or wherever you might find yourselves. And of course, my good friends at Interwest Insurance, Keith and Chip, thank you so much for your support. Um, I really appreciate you guys. And Chip, I'm going to get you on the show for season five. So look for a look forward to a an interview with Chip. That's enough blabbering from me for now. Uh, let's jump into the highlight of the episode here. We talk with Susan Purvis. Susan's an explorer, educator, and author of the best-selling adventure memoir, Go Find, My Journey to Find the Lost and Myself. She'll get into everything that she's she's done within her life during the, the interview here, and it's a great one. I read the book before talking to Sue um, and really enjoyed it. If you're looking for a good book for the late summer, check out Go Find. Sue was trained early on as a geologist and was a gold exploration geologist in the Dominican Republic with her then-husband um, when they decided to move to Crested Butte, Colorado. And that's when Sue traded her rock hammer for a pair of skis and started training her dog, Tasha, to become an avalanche rescue dog and a search and rescue dog. But this book is also about much more than just the dog team aspect of search and rescue. It's also about Sue navigating her life and um, coming up against some roadblocks in a fairly male-dominated um, profession of search and rescue, especially in a, in a small town. Sue also has done quite a few other things in her life um, and currently owns and runs Crested Butte Outdoors, which is a company that specializes in wilderness medicine and avalanche courses. So when she's not writing or, or on a speaking tour, um, you can find her teaching wilderness first responder and first aid courses as well as airy courses in the wintertime. So without further ado, let's jump right in with Susan Purvis. Here we go. All right. Welcome to the show, Susan. Thanks for making the time this morning. Good to be speaking with you. All right. Uh, Susan is a author of a recently released book called Go Find, My Journey to Find the Lost and Myself. And we're going to talk a bit about this book, but the the premise is it's a memoir talking about um, her training of uh, search and rescue and avalanche rescue dog. Is that right, Susan? That, that is right? so right. Not only did we work in the snow, but my dog and I also found people in the water, lost in the woods, or victims of crime. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, why don't you give us a little introduction of yourself, talk about your background, some of the roles that you've had in the snow and avalanche arena, as well as the, the SAR communities. Well, for all your listeners out there, um, I grew up skiing and ski racing on the 600 vertical foot slopes of northern Michigan on Lake Superior. Um, it was one of the activities uh, offered to, to women at the time. So I ski raced um, on ice. And even when I was in high school, I, I got involved. I was a junior um, ski patroller with the National Ski Patrol. Um, I think I was a junior or senior in high school when I did that. Then when I went to college, I kind of put all that stuff aside. Uh, I came out west to to uh, go to college, and I got a degree in geology. And because I was a, kind of a, a poor student, I had to go make money. I ended up um, looking for gold in Latin America with my husband at the time. And as a result, we could live anywhere, so I wanted to get my feet back into the snow, and we chose to commute to the Dominican Republic out of Crested Butte, Colorado. 
So while looking for gold in the Dominican Republic, was this just for yourselves or were you working for a, a larger entity? How does how does that work? I, I've never really talked or met a, a gold searcher before. <laughs> yeah, a gold, uh, a gold exploration geologist. So um, my husband at the time, he was offered the job to run an exploration project in the Dominican Republic. Um, his specialty was Caribbean um, geology and structure. He had a master's degree. And the Dominican Republic actually has a really large uh, gold wealth. And actually, the um, Christopher Columbus stopped there because all the natives at the time were wearing free gold. So there's a huge, easy, accessible gold deposit. So we were hired by an international gold exploration company to do some reconnaissance. So our work in geology exploration is not a whole lot of different than search and rescue. And I'll tell you why, because, you know, we read and look at maps for a living. We have to look and see, you know, the historical gold data. And then we show up, we got to figure out how to get there, you know, how to um, move through the country and determine if there's a gold resource there. And when you start looking at it in search and rescue, that's why I feel like we were pretty, my husband and I and my dog were a really good team is that we would know where maybe someone was located the last point seen. We knew how we would have to get there. And, you know, we looked and read maps for a living. So I learned that I, you know, by reading my dog, where the scent was and where it wasn't just like geology we knew where the gold was and where it wasn't mm -hmm. so the two intersected very nicely and as a result of uh, i'll tell you in a minute about hearing about why i got involved in search and rescue with a dog those two professions intersected nicely and we were really good at it so it kind of in the off season from gold exploration, you were able to choose wherever you wanted to live. And so you, you guys landed in Crested Butte, Colorado, one of the last great ski towns in America. Um, and how did you get involved with search and rescue and, and ski patrol and that sort of thing? When I was working in the Dominican Republic, we would, I would, I felt really isolated. We would have to kind of hold up in remote areas with the campesinos, tough living conditions. And I felt really alone there, even though I just got married. And, you know, my husband would be gone a lot. I felt really um, threatened there. I didn't know if I'd get kidnapped because, you know, we were tagged, you know, rich Americans with gold and new trucks, you know, which, you know, it wasn't our stuff. It was the company's stuff. And I always felt threatened there. And I felt like, you know, it was fun for a while, but my, I didn't care about finding gold. I needed something bigger and better for me in my life. And so when we showed up in Crested Butte, I thought, wow, maybe I should ski patrol. Now, isn't that an interesting concept? I'm a 33-year-old woman. The last time I ski patrolled when was when I was maybe 16. I grew up on a 600-foot vertical slope, and now I'm saying, wow, I think I want to be on ski patrol. I didn't know anything about avalanches, really. I didn't know how to move through avalanche terrain. I had no medical training. But for some reason, I... I decided to sign up for, back in the day, Crested Butte had a Crested Butte Ski Patrol school, so it was a 50-hour course. Mm. So I showed up. I was one of two women. There was maybe 13 of us. You know, I, I was, you know, most of the people in my class were, you know, 18 to 24-year-old men. So we learned, you know, how to be a ski patroller. And when, during this 100-inch snowstorm, which they're, they they get, you know, maybe every decade. The ski patroller was telling me inside the shack, he's like, wow, did you hear about that avalanche that happened across the street, you know, six years ago? So it was an urban avalanche in the town of Mount Crested Butte. And I'm like, no, I don't know anything about this avalanche. And he was saying on a Sunday morning, it was a bluebird morning at 9 a.m. after the storm had passed. 
a couple of family members uh, were held up in a condominium because of the snowstorms. They had to spend an extra night. And while they're waiting for the sh- the airport shuttle bus to bring them back to the airport, the three little toddlers, like four, four, and six years old, were outside the condo playing. The dad was in the parking lot putting the luggage into the shuttle bus. When the dad thought he heard like a boom, maybe from a distant airplane, and he looked up and this wall of snow came down and buried all three toddlers. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Like, oh, my gosh. And it wasn't a very significant or a big hill, but it had all the components. It was a wind-loaded slope. It was, you know... So it had a cornice, it was 38 degrees, and the runout happened to be, you know, in the parking lot or into the side of these condominiums, which is actually still there today. And so um, I'm like, oh, my God. And this was before Crested Butte had an intact search and rescue team, but they did have volunteer fire and they did have volunteer ambulance. So the pagers went off. Um, people in the surrounding condos and at the complex who would grab shovels, uh, you know, a swimming pool hook. Everybody just showed up in their, you know, tennis shoes and just started probing for these three kids. Two of them were found within the first six minutes in respiratory arrest. They were blue. They, someone did CPR on them and they survived. <clears throat> so I'm t- listening to the story up at the ski patrol shack and I'm like, Oh my God. And he goes, and then, because at the time we had an avalanche dog. I'm like, oh my God. So the avalanche dog went? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, well, what'd the dog do? And you can imagine, you know, three kids buried, hundreds of rescuers. It was a complicated scene. And I said, well, did the dog find the kid? And he's like, no. And I'm like, what do you mean? Isn't that the dog's only job is to find someone buried? And they, and I kept saying, so how come the dog couldn't find the kid? How come the dog couldn't find the kid? And the answer they gave me wasn't good enough. And I don't even know if you could answer it. And then I thought, wow. So the, it turns out the kid was found eight to 10 feet under, you know, a backhoe had to kind of remove the snow. I think a prober found him eventually, you know, horrific circumstances. And, that night I was walking through the snowstorm up on that hillside where that avalanche had happened six years earlier. There were still no warning signs to like warn me as a new person in Crested Butte, like do not enter avalanche danger. I could look up in the condominiums, the tourists were cooking and, you know, heavy winds, a hundred inches of snow is coming down. I'm like, Oh my God, like nothing's changed. Mm. And I thought in that moment, I was like slogging through knee-deep snow up the road uh, to my friend's condo because I had to spend the night up there. I thought, wow, I wonder if I could train a dog to save a life. And at that moment, I vowed to never leave anyone behind. It was also the same year I said to my husband, till death do us part. So you guys got married that year. What what year was that? It was 1995. Okay. So I got married. We're commuting to the Dominican Republic. I, I now I got a puppy, like, and I work in the Dominican Republic. <laughs> you know, so I <laughs> I was making a lifestyle change. Like I I finally found purpose in my life. Like I wanted to make a difference. And so I had to juggle my, one of the metaphors in my book is I had one foot in the snow at 10,000 feet in Crested Butte, and then one foot in the mud in the Dominican Republic. So now I had to, I was on a mission. I'm going to train an avalanche dog. Didn't know anything about it. I didn't have any mentors. As a matter of fact, nobody was really training an avalanche dog in the valley uh, when I first started. Yeah, it sounded like the Crested Butte Ski Patrol didn't really have them much of a organized avalanche program. rescue dog program. Right. right. But I think they were starting to organize that while I was there too. Uh-huh. Um, and, and you got it, this puppy. I guess we could introduce her, right? Tasha. Sure. Tasha. Tasha. Sorry. <laughs> you got uh, Tasha without the implicit goal of her becoming a search dog, right? At first she was just a member of your family. 
Yeah. So I had taken that, the, I knew I wanted a dog. I had heard the story, the, you know, of six months before. And I, you know, I thought, how can I, you know, how can I manage all this? And then one day, you know, in the meantime, I thought, I'm going to be on ski patrol. I can do this. Even though I was kind of outside the bell curve of a, a typical ski patroller, I'm, you know, 33. I'm a five foot four tiny little gal. So like big dreams. I, t- I took a wilderness EMT class that summer because in order to be on ski patrol, you, you know, I was like, okay, what do I need to be on ski patrol? You need to be an EMT. So I took the EMT class and then I thought, okay, uh, that fall I got a puppy and I did get hired um, as a part-time ski patroller. Without and your so, dog, like just, just soon right. got hired. I got hired, right? Yeah. Because I just had this little puppy. I didn't know anything, right? And so, but I was hoping, you know, my dream was my na- naivete is, oh, you're training a puppy. Of course, we'll let you in into our program. Mm. But I would find out later, you know, oh, you know, no, that's not how we work. You can't just barge in here and with your big dreams with a puppy, you have to be a competent line patroller for three years f- working full time before a dog can come into this program. Mm. Which, which seems like a seems like a fair protocol, right? It seems like a fair protocol, but at the time that was like a, a dream breaker for me because like I don't have time, you right. know, for my dog and I in our fourth year to, you know, because we don't know like a dog's lifespan is sh- so short mm-hmm. and it takes years to train a dog. And it also, you got, you know, because you're in the ski world, all it takes is a, you know, an ACL tear on your knee and you're, you're not doing that career anymore either. Sure. So, um, so I had, you know, so how did it all work? I had to go to the, the school of hard knocks, I had to submerse myself in dog training. So I joined a volunteer statewide search and rescue group called search and rescue dogs of Colorado. I had to join and they, and so these, the abbreviation is SARDOC Mm -hmm. and they're going to train me how, uh, and teach me how to train my dog, which meant if I want, to be deployed and dispatched through their organization, they're saying, oh, you have to join your search and rescue team. You have to have the competence and skill and be a part of a team. So when I'm in Crested Butte, I also join Crested Butte Search and Rescue because they're going to teach me how to be a search and rescue team member. And then I also needed all the quick, fast mentorship of being at a class A avalanche prone ski area. So I'm on, on ski patrol. I'm on search and rescue. I'm on search and rescue dogs of Colorado. And I get hired as an EMT at a urgent care clinic at the base of the ski area. So all of a sudden I'm immersed in medicine, avalanche, search and rescue. And I'm trying to, and I have to commute back and forth to Dominican Republic and I have this puppy and a husband. That sounds like a really busy schedule. Busy schedule. Yeah. And, and so along the way, um, you ran into kind of some small town politics. You ran into some resistance from some, some folks that were part of these organizations that were, that were pretty established within the community. Yeah. So, you know, again, I'm an outsider coming into a small town. We, a lot of us know what that's like, especially in the ski industry. We all, you know, kind of come from somewhere and say, wow, this is my dream and I want to do it. And, you know, why would there be any resistance to saving a life? Now that was my naivete because Mm. I thought, wow, this is like a higher calling. Um, But everybody's got their set of rules and, you know, the pecking order. And I'm entering you know, there weren't really any women in search and rescue in Crested Butte. It was kind of the guys and they're mostly snowmobile and fire and ambulance guys. So they kind of organized after that, the three kids were buried. And the same with, 
ski patrol, I think at the time it was actually out of 50 people full-time and part-time, there might've been, I might've been the seventh woman. Okay. That's not a too bad of a ratio. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I don't have it, you know, I'm a strong skier, but my skill set, you know, uh, for that, that world is minimal. Okay, so I'm a rookie, you know, and I'm like, but, you know, and I just wanted it. I needed mentors, you know, and I didn't get the mentorship probably I needed. Um, And so I had to go find it elsewhere, which I did get through, you know, the American Institute for Avalanche Research and Education. Now, they were coming along the same time I was there. Mm-hmm. So I got to, like, really glob on to a lot of the backcountry skiers and their program, their um, their education model. And then, so I started going to their uh, courses that they were just starting up in Crested Butte. And so it sounds like you just started to pave your own road a little bit to training your – search and rescue dog and avalanche dog. And so what did some of the certification process look like that through SARDOC? Yeah, you're right. I, there was no manual. I was kind of a maverick. Nobody had done what I've done. So in Gunnison County, which is the size of Connecticut with 10,000 people all dispersed all over, um, I had to create my own roadmap to training and trying to figure out how to deploy a dog. So I joined Search and Rescue Dogs in Colorado. They actually had a thick manual and said, here's how you train a dog, and you have to go down the list and check all the boxes. Their foundation is is wilderness search and rescue, meaning we're going to find little Johnny lost in the mountains. So your dog is either going to be tr- have a discipline of air scent, which means your dog has the nose in the air and is looking for the scent of the lost person. So you're either going to get certified in air scent or you're going to get certified in trailing, which is you've seen the dogs with their nose to the ground. Mm. Um, and you follow the, the old track of the person that's missing. That process takes on average three years. Now, because I lived in avalanche country and I was on ski patrol, they had a amendment. If you're in the avalanche world, you can actually get certified in avalanche first. And your dog has to be a minimum of 18 months old. And I was so hyper-focused. I'm like, I need that avalanche certification. I want to save lives. Remember my dream? Yeah. So as long as I stayed on ski patrol and I stayed on search and rescue, I could get my avalanche certification in 18 months. And so I, in the winter, I trained on avalanche. I buried hundreds of people. And sometimes the ski patrol would let me go up there and, you know, because they, you know, you're only as good as the, as how much you train. And so the deep snow is up high. Mm-hmm. It's hard to train when you only have a foot of snow on the ground. And in the meantime, in the off season, I'm, I'm trying to get certified in this wilderness air set work. Mm-hmm. And so every step forward is two steps back. Um, and what I, since I was so isolated, I was three to four hours from the nearest dog handler. Um, my obedience training was not that good. I, I had this, you know, my parents raised me as a free spirit. <laughs> so I was like, I'm going to raise my dog as a free spirit. And, you know, had I put, it had been hard. And I was trying to learn my, my dominance, the alpha, <laughs> the submissive in my pack between my husband, the pack between my dog. Right. Like, where are we in the pack order in ski patrol and in search and rescue and at work? I mean, these are all interesting things to navigate as we get older. Um, You know, and how how do we manage all of that? So there was really uh, and I had to grow my own, you know, put on my big girl pants and fight for what I believed in because, you know, people knock you over if you let them. Yeah, sure. 
that was a that was a pretty fun aspect of your book. I thought it was just kind of it was the evolution of your relationship with your dog and coming to find um, some of that obedience work and and some of the follies that happened along the way. It seemed like your dog was probably pretty well known in the town of Mount Crested Butte. Yes, you know she was. So she was kind of a troublemaker, maybe kind of a lot like me. And she was, she had really, search, search was on her mind. She was either going to search for food or she was going to search for human beings. She was really good. And so most of her trouble became, because, you know, missions don't happen that often or training right. doesn't happen that often. So she's like, oh, I'm going to go find myself a snack. It was either in the form of food or human feces <laughs> so she loved human feces and um when she would leave my site which i should have left her on uh you know on lead more times than not she was she was always scrounging around for food and we got she got herself into a lot of trouble um she would do anything and if you guys out there who have black labs know that, you know, some black labs are just, you know, little pigs, right? Right. They will do anything to find food. Um, so another aspect of the book. So I guess I should back up. So you eventually attain all three disciplines of certification through SARDOC. Is that right? Yes. So at, so at 18 months, I did achieve my goal with Tasha at um, Aspen Mountain Resort, we, I, I passed my avalanche test at 18 months. Mm -hmm. And then soon, well, after lots of uh, failures, I got my wilderness certification. And then eventually we went on to get our water certification. And then we did, a, you know, my reality that um, – happen kind of in the midpoint of my book is that, you know, all I wanted to do was save a life with my dog. I thought dog team saved lives. Mm -hmm. And in the process of this, you know, going on missions is, you know, I realized, oh my God, people don't survive these heinous accidents, right? They don't, very few people survive avalanches. Very few people s survive drowning events. Mm -hmm. Um, especially up really at high cold elevations in Colorado. And then I went, wow, like, okay, I achieved my goal. We did have a live find. And then I'm like, but so now what? It wasn't what I thought it would be. And I had to make a choice. Like, is there even a higher calling? And I realized that the work we did was really, it wasn't even really about the victim. It was really about the families, right? And the communities that lose people. And really we were, we provided a service to help families find closure to their loved ones. Yeah. It's certainly, certainly a big part of, um, search dog teams, right? Yeah. And so I was, nobody ever really told me that dog teams really don't find people alive. It's rare. It's rare in a, in a search and rescue dog career that they'll even maybe go on an avalanche mission. Most ski patrol dog teams would hardly ever deploy because, you know, ski patrol avalanche dogs technically only stay at their ski resort. And, you know, there's not a lot of avalanches happening in ski resorts. So a dog, well, the, a dog team at a ski resort will have a whole career and never go on a mission. Well, many, many of the, professional ski patrols that have dog programs also do respond to events that happen outside the ski area boundary many times by being dispatched in a county search and rescue authority exactly so that's changing and now there's like dual purpose dogs right. for sure you know they they are um you know and and so that you know that's happening a lot more, but back in the day, you know, that was just starting up and, um, a lot of dog programs, you know, they just stayed at their ski hill cause they didn't have any other way, but now we have helicopters everywhere and they get to deploy, which is awesome. Sure. Yeah. And that brings up a good point. I mean, there are some people that are, are kind of, you know, might say, why are we spending all this time training these dogs? Right. You know, and, and, and how many live finds have there been of avalanche victims 
in North America. Do you know that statistic? Yeah, it's, it's less than, you know, five fingers for sure. Right. And I think there was one last year in France that was a yeah. lag fine. Um, but it's, it's very rare. So I, I think the point that you're making is a valid one is, is that it's very important to bring closure to the family of these victims of, of avalanches or other um, uh, death by other means in the backcountry, right? What I learned along the way, especially from, you know, handlers in Summit County, and they were, you know, they'd been doing this 10 or 20 years before I had, and they were my mentors that they were telling me that there's, there's a lot of politics in the deployment of specialized teams in search and rescue. And I thought, like, what do you mean? Because I just assumed I'm a certified dog handler. I'd get called all the time. But who calls dog teams or who calls search and rescue teams? It's the sheriff. And the sheriffs come and go and their deputies come and go. And so there's this whole hierarchy of of how you're on the call list. Mm. And I had to learn to navigate all of that. I thought my search and rescue team would call me out, but it doesn't, you know, really the sheriff's department calls you out and so I would say well why wouldn't they call a dog team even to this day I live in communities where I'm like I'm screaming because I'm either watching it on television or I'm reading about it. I'm like why aren't they calling the dog team and so even in 2019 why aren't they why aren't the sheriff's departments or the search and rescue teams calling this the resource that can solve the problem and it, it frustrates me and that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book Right. Well, Dogs, dog teams are quick, fast, and efficient. They save communities a lot of time and, and taxpayer dollars to solve these problems. And they're most effective when things are fresh is one thing I got out of your book. Yeah, like we need that first opportunity when there's not 200 people on the scene. Right. The dog needs quiet, clean environment because if the scent's there, they're going to find it. We have to give them that credit. These Animals are so amazing. Yeah. And so why is it that a dog team's called in seven days later? I, I still don't even understand. So it's all about education. Right. Well, and it was pretty apparent in your book as well to me that that there are egos involved in saving lives, right? And, and everybody wants to save. Everybody wants yes. that notoriety and kind of the heroism, I guess you could say. Yes. And I can, I'll share something with you. It's really hard to hear, but I was told this from a, um, a search and rescue incident commander who also had dogs for years. And he's like, Sue, when you think about it, and you know, it, it breaks my heart to even say this, but it's true. And I'm about truth telling and, you know, sh sheriff's departments, you know, they, they get, especially near big urban centers, they'll all of a sudden they get their airtime. They're doing everything possible to solve this problem. And we've got everybody here and day after day, you know, they're on television. It's in the news, especially on the front range. People are glued to the television when there's an avalanche mm -hmm. mission. And, um, you know, it's like, well, why haven't the dogs been called? Ah, right. Cause this could be over in like, really 20 minutes or less. So what I learn, and, you know, people can defend themselves is that, you know, people want this stuff to go on and on and on because, you know, there's a lot of politics involved, you know, sheriffs are, you know, elected and they, you know, they get airtime and they might not know about the resource. And that's like, well, how come they don't know about a resource? And I go, oh my God! So there's there's politics involved in saving lives. Mm -hmm. Well, it certainly seems like dogs are a, a key part of the tools, dog teams, I should say. We don't want to separate dogs from people because it takes a team to work. A dog team, um, part human, part canine, and it certainly seems like the dog teams are an integral part to effective search and rescues. Um, and hopefully your book has, has brought about some awareness of that within especially the public. Yeah. And so, you know, we, 
what is a dog team? So there's the handler, the main handler. Then every handler needs, you know, a, a, a what we call a navigator or a technician, mm-hmm. right? In, in the avalanche world, it's usually a safety technician. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the, the helper is the one with their, you know, the goose in the field with their eyes up looking for avalanche hazards or, you know, looking at the dog when the handler might miss something. But when you get deployed, the handler's only job is to watch the behavior of the dog. And, you know, what I like to say is create a map of where scent is and where it's not because we, like, as a as a bystander, you'd say, well, avalanche has to be pretty easy. The person's underneath, the scent rises, the dog should be able to pinpoint it, dig, and there's the person. But in complex uh, slopes where there's down timber or there's big rocks, scent likes to follow the path of least resistance. So a dog could be indicating even maybe, you know, 20 yards away because that's maybe the, the path of least resistance because maybe somebody's under a log. And so you you have to put all your work together, all your years of working in water and the wilderness and an avalanche to solve a, a puzzle. Mm. And so, you know, missions can be complicated and that's why sometimes dogs aren't aren't as effective because these problems become complicated. Sure. And so your main navigator was your at your t- at the time your husband Doug, right? It yes. seemed like yeah. he, it was a great team of the your dog, yourself and Doug. Um and I thought some of the stories within your book were great about talking about your relationship as search and rescuers and then your personal marital relationship outside of that kind of work and how those played off of each other and, and evolved over time. Yes. You know, I'll, I'll share this with you. Not many people know this, but I, I had a, I have a literary agent in New York city and he read my manuscript twice and he said, um, you want it? Sue, he calls me up. He's like, you want to know what your book's about? I'm like, okay, tell me what my book's about. Right. Cause we're <laughs> so involved in our book. We can't even see straight after a while. <laughs> And he goes, you know, your book is about the difference between a creative, productive, life-affirming partner and one that is not. And I went, oh, mic drop. Ooh. So why is it, I'll say that, you know, why is it that I could have this amazing bond and uh, relationship with my dog that, you know, and then over here, I can't even communicate with my husband and create this bond that I have with my dog. Mm. Uh, yeah. Mm. People are right. hard. Sometimes dogs yeah. are Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I kind of pitch my book as, I'll say this, how come it's easier for me to jump out of the side of a helicopter at 13,000 feet with my avalanche dog in my lap to find a dead guy? than it is to talk to my husband about our 18-year relationship together. Mm. So when I first started out to write my book, it was just going to be a series of, you know, the the funny parts of training the dog and then the missions. And about three years into writing my book, I wrote that scene where that came out of me. And I actually wrote that. Why is it easier for me to jump out of the side of a helicopter with my dog why is that easier than for me to talk to about my deepest wounds and vulnerabilities with my husband? So then my book became something else because I had to go back and answer all those questions. Mm-hmm. It certainly was kind of a, a nice theme throughout the book, I thought. And, and um, that's an important part of all of our lives, right, is the human relationships. But um it was it was interesting to see how it played out in your life. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, you know, I do want to say so I was probably never going to go back to my community to share my book. Mhm. Have I told you this yet? Uh, you did, but you you haven't yeah. shared it with my listeners. So, I ended up going back to Crested Butte. And you know, that t- that took courage. Like that took a lot of courage for me to go back because I um and 
when I, I spoke, uh, five minutes before my, my presentation started, the, the place was packed. In walks kind of the main characters of my search and rescue team. And I'm like, oh, my God, my ex-business partner, the ski patrol director. And they all came in with a big smile, a big hug, congratulations. And I'm like, oh, like, yay, you know, because we've all grown they were the last one standing, you know, and I look up at him and I go, well, you guys can all throw eggs at me um, in two weeks after you read my book. And they go, oh, they're all standing there with books in their hands. They go, oh, we read your book and we read it together. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, and you're here. Okay, so. One of the things that happened is everybody kind of leaned into me. One of my antagonists in my book is, I call, I call him stink face. And they all lean in, lean in and go, am I stink face? You know? <laughs> and um, I go, I don't know, are you? So it's a reminder, even myself, we all have a little bit of stink face in us, sure. right, as we, as we go through this life. Um, and... You know, none of us are perfect. No organization's perfect. Remember, like a lot of this stuff is volunteer and we're all, you know, trying to find our way through it. So I felt like a, it was a full circle moment. I got, I probably got the validation I was looking for 25 years later from just them saying, you know, we're proud of you. Great job. And, um, you know, I wrote the book to teach, to educate, to motivate. People do, you know, if you have a dream, purpose, and passion, you know, follow it. You could probably do it better than I did with a little more grace, but don't let people knock you down. And it's important that you you follow through with your dream. Sue, I was hoping you could recount a, a story of, of a, a mission that you went on with your dog um, in the avalanche realm. Yeah, the year was 1999, and I get a call at 2 in the afternoon. It's a Sunday, and the sheriff's department's calling me, not my search and rescue team, but me, saying the four Western State College kids were just buried in an avalanche up on the Continental, continental Divide uh, on Cumberland Pass. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is the moment I've been waiting for, right? So I scream. I was actually sick. And I'm like, oh, my God, like I've been certified for a year and a half, had never been called to a real mission. And now I screamed to my husband who was home, thank God. And I'm like, oh, my God, four college kids were just buried. So we at this time, we didn't have cell phones. I had to go get radios, all this delay, right? I have to drive like an hour and a half because we don't have helicopters, right? You see all these things. The weather was bad. And halfway there, um, I get turned, I get stood down saying that all, everybody's accounted for. And I'm like, oh, but I have to go. So the sheriff gave me permission to go to the scene. I arrive at the scene, you can imagine um, there's a hearse, there's an ambulance, there's the sheriff's vehicles, and I'm like, well, where is everybody? And, you know, they're still like five miles up the road, at, you know, up the snowmobile road. Nobody had come down. Well, so I'm standing there with um, two of the, the, the people who helped in the rescue they were part of the group but they weren't caught in the avalanche and i i'm sitting with them inside the ambulance and they just you know were white and shivering basically they just uncovered all their four friends because they all had beacons and i thought i'm just gonna let tasha come into the ambulance and you know, I just let Tasha lick their hand and she jumped up on the ambulance seat and kind of snuggled up to him. And I thought, you know, wow, like we're serving even a more important purpose right now. And I just sat there in silence. Tasha was, you know, so they had to start to look up and, you know, they got to pet Tasha. And I'm, 
So I asked him, I'm like, tell me what happened, right? Mm. So now I'm making connection with these two men who just lost, you know, three three of the people were killed, uh, buried six feet deep. One of the college kids was buried to his neck, and they were the rest, you know, these two guys were the rescuers. And I thought, wow, like, there's more to search and rescue than just, you know, being the hero and, you know, finding the victims. We can all have different roles at different times. So I was sitting there listening to these kids talk. I call them kids, but they're probably 20 at the time. Um, I learned that one of the uh, college students that was killed was Casey, and he was from my hometown, hmm. from northern Michigan. So here's a kid from northern Michigan that comes out to Colorado to college, and he's killed. And that, you know, I look back and go, that could have been me. You know, luckily I went to college in Montana. The snowpacks has a little more stability because mm. I probably would have killed myself in Colorado because I didn't know anything about avalanches um, in 1980, um, which it happens to a lot of people, right? They have no knowledge, no awareness. They go out skiing and they get killed. So we're sitting there, you know, then the, the victims start coming down. Um, I... I am with the coroner, I'm with the sheriff, I'm starting to learn about search and rescue that nobody could teach you. I'm there as these victims are coming down, avalanche victims, and I'm like, you know, I, my dog gets to um, go by them, make connection with, with the, the victims. And it was just this calm, quiet, beautiful moment for all of us. Like, we're all this big team, and we're, it's all serving a higher purpose. So I leave and I go home and two weeks later, I get a call from the mother of Casey from my hometown. She's like, the phone rings. I totally unexpected. She goes, Sue, you know, when she's crying, she's like, I'm a friend of your sister's. She gave me your number. She said I could call you. And she goes, I've lost my son. I have one question for you. I'm like, okay. And do you want to know what she said to me? Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, so what does a grieving mother say? She says, why didn't they start CPR on my son? And then she goes, I see on television in Europe when people are buried, they survive for days, you know, kind of in these urban avalanches um, where, you know, pick people are recovered, you know, days later. And she was like, I just want to know why they didn't start CPR on my son. And in that moment, I'm like, oh, you know, and I've been in medicine now for four years. I know so much, you know, from skiing and the clinic. I go, they did try CPR on your son. I go, he was just buried so deep. He didn't survive. And I, and she goes, well, thank you. That's all I wanted to know. And she hangs up. Mm. And so in my book, you talk, it's probably one of my most, um, the proudest moment in my book. I reflect back on what I could have, what I should have said, you know, in reflection. And, um, okay, so that's that story, but let me fast forward it. It's 20 years almost to the day. I'm back in my hometown as a keynote speaker two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and I'm on the stage speaking for a film festival and I'm talking about my journey of um you know how a young woman in this the little town of Marquette, Michigan has a life of adventure and exploration. I'm an author and they are in the audience, the mom and the dad. They have no idea it's me. And their whole life just gets turned upside down. They go, that's the woman who was on that mission with my son. So I, after my talk, I meet with them and I say, let's talk for th tomorrow. Let's have coffee. So I meet with them. This is 20 years after the accident. We hug, we laugh, we cry. We didn't talk about the accident, but what they've done is they created a scholarship 
in her, their son's name at Western State College that one person per year as a senior in college gets a full scholarship. They've connected, they connect with, for 20 years, I think they've given out 20 scholarships. They go back, they're involved in these kids' lives. They're still a part of that big family where all these kids were on that scene. And they have taken tragedy and made something so beautiful of it. And, you know, I I get to be a part of that 20-year later story too, and it gives me joy in that you know, because as rescuers, we, we do our job and we leave and we never hear from anybody afterwards. And I went, wow, this is like a really beautiful thing. And I'll always be a part of their lives now. Yeah, it's quite the story of bringing it full circle and and a great example of how you can bring closure to families of, of people that have been lost, either in the woods or in avalanches or in bodies of water. Uh, through yeah. search and rescue, yeah. Um, Sue, it's been great to talk to you today, and and thanks for sharing some of your stories and explain a little bit about what goes into training a search and rescue dog, an avalanche rescue dog. Um, and people can find your book probably just about anywhere you can find a book, right? <laughs> yeah, probably on Amazon or yeah. support support your local indie bookstore. Yeah, go and there I just first. Want to yeah, and I want to say thank you for, one, having the courage to start a podcast and talk about hard subjects and sharing and educating everybody. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, it wouldn't be much without the guests, the great guests that I have on the show. So thank you. All right. Goodbye. Cheers. Thanks for listening to that one, everybody. If you enjoyed it, you will sure enjoy the book. So get it wherever you get your books. Again, check that local bookstore first, and then maybe move on to the the big A, big Amazon. Um, If you're just finding the podcast, thanks for listening. Um, You can go back and listen to other episodes and other seasons. They're all archived wherever you get your podcasts, or you can find them all at the website www.theavalanchehour.com If you are enjoying the show, please rate and review it on whatever platform you listen to it on. Super simple. Helps me out. It's not too big of an ask. So I appreciate you doing that. Appreciate it. Thank you in advance. If you have some feedback for me and you want to share it, feel free to email me. Um, I can be found at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com And like I said in the beginning of the episode, if you have ideas for episodes for next season, shout them out, and I appreciate you. Um, The folks that have already sent some ideas for some episodes, I'm excited to follow up with some of those. So thank you very much. Give us a follow on the socials. We're at the Avalanche Hour Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Music today was by Ketza for our first track and that was Open Eye Open Eye by Ketza and taking us out of the hour right now is Sunlight Dub by Sholin Dub those tracks were made possible through the permission of the artist and can be found at ketza.uk you can probably find some other tracks there that you'd enjoy listening to or if you need some tracks for some sort of project uh, they got, got a lot of great beats there our artwork was created by Mike T As you all know, Mike T is the man. Um, If you need any artwork, creative artwork or logo work done, you should be looking up Mike T. You can check out his website at www.miketea.com. He'll set you straight. I hope everybody has a great rest of the summer navigating this crazy world we we live in. Um, And... Hopefully you all can find some solace in, in uh, closing your eyes and pretending like you're riding in some deep cold powder. Um, that always sets me back to center, and I bet it does for you as well. So until next time, stay tuned, stay safe.
keep having fun out there. And whatever you do, do it nicely. Cheers. Cheers.